Hey everyone, today on How I Scale My Team, it's actually only me and Maggie, who I'm going to introduce in a second. Shachal, my partner in crime, is not going to be with us today, but we're going to keep it interesting and fun, like when Shachal is always here. So we're really happy to have today Maggie Hood, Director of Sales at Webflow. Hey, Maggie. Hello. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting. I've been wanting to interview Maggie for a long time, so we're really happy that we made it work. So kind of let's just start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself and a few sentences about what you do at Webflow. Yeah, absolutely. It's so great to meet everyone and all of the listeners. So right now I'm director of sales at Webflow. Really essentially what that means is I lead a majority of our go-to-market organization. So all of our uh, sales development, business development, and then majority of our account executives. So really kind of the, the folks who are on the front lines who are helping to generate enterprise interest for our different customers. For me personally, I live in San Francisco. I'm a mom to two little girls. I'm a very active angel investor. I advise five different female CEOs on sales go-to-market strategies, do a lot of work in the venture capital space. And then prior to Webflow, probably something important to call out that we'll talk about quite a bit on the show, I'm sure, is that I was the first founding account executive at Slack out of Slack HQ back in 2015. So I was with Slack from about 12 million in ARR to over a billion. And I left uh, to head over to Webflow right as we were wrapping up our acquisition with Salesforce. Wow, crazy. Super impressive. And you know what? Exactly. Let's rewind to 2015 when you worked at Slack, when you kind of rose through the ranks from being an account uh, executive all the way to senior enterprise leader. So during your time there, as you said, you know, you saw the company grow from 12 million AR to $1 billion, which is quite a journey. What parts kind of did you play in helping the company grow uh, during these times? So... One of the best parts about being with a hyper growth and a scaling company is you get to wear truly so many hats, sweaters, socks, shoes. You get to do everything. For me, it's hard to even really look back and, and speak succinctly about one different area, but I'll highlight a couple of the big areas that I feel uh, I was able to come in and really lean and impact. So really being in there on the ground floor, we were a small office at the time. There was probably about 30 of us in San Francisco. So we're sitting closely with Stuart and Bill and Cal and really a lot of the founding team member. My job there was to be the front lines in developing our playbook for how we sell into companies. Something that we realized really early on at Slack is that we were trying to be everything to everyone. And what I mean by that is there would be one minute I'd be on a call with a 10-person company. The next minute I'd be on a call with the largest retailer in the entire world. And there was so much context switching because we didn't have a fully baked out sales team you know, with different segments. So most sales teams will have SMB, mid-market, enterprise, major, strat. We didn't have any of that early on. Um, so that all morphed and I helped grow all of that over time, wore many different hats in all different areas of our account executive org, and then eventually moved into leadership where I oversaw uh, our mid-market org for the West, as well as then our enterprise team. The other thing I would say that was really instrumental for my time at Slack is I was the person who built our very first PLG or PLS, product-led sales motion. And what I mean by that is back in early 2015, I got to Slack and I realized we've never gone outbound. You know, we've never reached out to someone proactively. We've always waited for them to come to us. And I knew that 
in order to be able to really hunt, in order to really be able to go and get those biggest customers, you need to go outbound to them. Or at the very least, you need to start looking within our database. I mean, we had millions of users that were free or that were smaller self-serve. So I put together this idea, which later on ended up becoming the biggest single source of revenue for Slack sales team, but it was essentially our upsell and expand and cross-sell motion. Early days, we called it the proactive team because outbound was a little bit of a, I don't call it a dirty word at the time, but but we weren't, you know, a full-on sales team yet. So I would spend so much time, nights, weekends, just going through really manually through our database and reaching out to these customers and essentially saying like, hey, I'm Maggie, I'm at Slack, I saw you on our platform, would love to chat with you and learn about how you're using the tool. And the goal there actually, and one of the most important things about developing an early stage sales team is listening to your customers. And so really able to go in there to get on these calls with them. Of course, we always sent them Slack socks as a thank you afterwards. People love the Slack socks, but we were able to get all of these insights on why people were using our product, what it meant to them, how it was transforming how they worked, and then take all of that information and package it up into a really nice story and compelling use case and bring it to the executives in their company. Do you remember what was kind of the switch or how you made that change and like in focusing on the persona that you're going to focus Slack to? Slack was an interesting one. And actually, this might be a bit better to touch on Webflow. Slack, where it was so interesting and so complicated, is you can literally sell Slack to everyone because every single person in every single company can use Slack. So it was a lot of context switching. Our ultimate buyer was usually the CIO type, right? The person who's in charge of tooling, in charge of operations. So they were our ultimate buyer. But let's maybe touch on Webflow a little bit because Webflow, given that we are a no-code, low-code website hosting and development platform, we definitely have a bit more of a tangible buyer, which actually one of the earliest things I realized when I came over to Webflow is like, I don't want to say it's easier to sell because it's still a very complex, very robust, amazing product, but it's a lot more defined who it is that we're selling to. So with Webflow, we've really been able to take our two hypotheses of you know, who are we selling to? It's engineering and marketing. Right now, the way it stands today is engineering typically oversees the website and marketing is the one asking for changes. Webflow moves the power of the website back into the hands of marketing, really eliminating the need for engineers and allowing for them to focus on developing their product or their service and not having to update the color of a font on the website. And so for us, we've we've gone through a lot of exercises at Webflow of testing different messaging and iterating and seeing where it lands and looking at our database. We have over 200,000 customers, I think it's 250,000 at this point that use us and understanding who are the folks that are ingrained in the tool every single day to all the way in like, who's the person that has the credit card? Like who's the credit card name that's on there to understand, is it, is it marketing, is it engineering, is it someone else? And to really understand what is the impact that Webflow is making on these companies? And then how do we translate that narrative and be very targeted with our approach and with our messaging as we build the sales team and we go outbound? Incredible. I think it's a, it's a great kind of tip or kind of insight for, you know, different team leaders listening right now. So we started talking about Webflow and, you know, we're in, I think less than less than two years, I think it was about kind of when we last talked, it was like 18 months, the sales team grew immensely from like 10 people to 100. That requires organizational changes, processes. How did you do it? 
Yeah, it has been rewarding, but it has not been easy. I'll kind of take a step back about what it what goes into hiring for those roles, because most people think you just open up the job rack and there you go. And that's actually not the case whatsoever. So when you're hiring and even thinking about a role, first off, you have to think about what is this role going to do? Who will they report to? How will we measure this their success? Who's currently doing this role today that will need to move it away from them and build it into something else? What are we going to pay them? What is the job family? What are the different careers and skills matrices? What type of person are we looking for? So a ton of work goes in upfront to really be able to even scope out the role. And then once you figured all of that out, that's when you actually launch the job description. You then go through a really robust hiring process for us. We take it really seriously to be able to interview folks from all walks of life, from all different diverse backgrounds, gender diversity, racial diversity, people from all different shapes and sizes of companies. So we go through usually a multi-month hiring process. You get the person to sign the offer, you get them to start, and now all the fun begins of building the job, building the role, building the department. So when I started at Webflow in, it was in April 2021, we only had two roles within sales. We had your kind of typical account executive, and then we had uh, technical customer success. We've since morphed into over 15 different roles across those 100 people. So if you think about that process that I just walked through, we had to go through that over 15 different times in order to build and assimilate these teams. But it's so worth it because there is nothing, and, and I know we'll talk later on about hiring because it is the single most important thing for any startup or any founder to get right is hiring, but it is something that we just take so incredibly seriously, but it is not easy. You know, it would be really easy to just take whoever comes in the door and give them offers and not be really thoughtful and intentional. But that's the single biggest mistake you could make as a founder. So, you know, there's a, a different kind of concept or kind of a theory of like higher, you know, there's like higher, slow, fire, fast, higher, fast, fire. Slow. So, you know, this kind of not put so much time, energy, resources into months of hiring. But it seems that you think and, you know, from your experience that this is the way to do it, to make sure that it's very specific and very kind of all like thought out uh, before bringing in a new team member? Something that I learned pretty early on at Slack from our former, or he's still currently there today, the SVP of global sales, Bob Fratty, is he educated us that a hiring mistake costs a company a million dollars. Let's just let that sink in for a minute. A million dollars for each hiring mistake. And let's break down like where that million dollars comes to be. It's all that time we just talked about that, you know, is spent trying to find this person, even craft the job role. It's getting the person in seat. It's the lost onboarding and ramp time. In terms of sales, it's actually that time of getting them to be assimilated with their book of business and meeting all of your customers. And then if they do a poor job, it's that lost revenue potential. It's then the time to exit them out of the business to go through, you know, performance management plan or whatever approach you decide to take. And then you have to start this whole thing all over again. So by this point in time, that hiring mistake has probably spent over you know, six months from end-to-end -end process. You have potentially damaged relationships with your customers, and you've also just lost out on pure productivity. So it is so unbelievably important to get hiring right, but it is equally important that if you make a mistake, 
to move that person out as quickly as you can. And oftentimes someone is going to realize they're not the right fit and they're not going to be happy either. And it's the best thing that you can do to move them out. Can you give examples of like, I've never heard a company have 15 different sales roles. Um, can you share some? Um, how, how is it over at Webflow? Absolutely. Yeah. I'll walk you through some of my orgs and what they look like. So, um, first off I have my leadership team. So I've got six leaders that report to me. Uh, each one has different kind of like functional groups they oversee. Uh, some are different levels of account executives. So from a growth account executive to a corporate account executive, to an enterprise account executive, to a majors account executive. So that's four. We've got sales development. We've got business development. We've got partner development. We've got solutions engineering. We've got renewals managers. We've got customer success, technical customer success. How do you sync between all these different kind of people? It's really tricky. And um, the, the single biggest thing for a leader that a leader needs to get right is communication within their companies and within their departments. One thing that I realized pretty early on is, you know, as you hyperscale, when your early days, smaller, everyone's working on the same thing. Everyone knows what's going on. We're all together. You know, we're all in a Zoom screen, all call it eight of us. So everyone's super in the loop. But as we scale to 20 people, 30, up to 100 and beyond, decisions get made at a different level. You're not sadly able to involve all 100 people in the sales team on every single decision that is being made. And so it's so important that when decisions are made, typically behind closed doors, kind of in the in the leadership level, that we are communicating down the why, down to our org and down to our field. And I've personally made this mistake a couple times, actually. It's not, not just been once where I've forgotten to communicate to the field. We made this decision and here's what went into this decision. People always want to know the why here. And it's so important to communicate that why. You know, here's what went into it. We looked at this data. We talked to all of these peoples. We looked at our project for next year and where we want to end the year revenue-wise. We looked at our customer segmentation base. We looked at our lead flow and where it's coming in and made these different hypotheses in order to get to this decision. And I think that's something that leaders, as you go through hyperscale, can often forget to do is to communicate the why behind all of the decisions that were made. Because ultimately, the most important reason for this is you need to get your teams and your field to be supportive of these decisions and really get them bought along with you. You know, it's crucial what you're saying right now, because, you know, I think engagement and feeling part of the team, feeling part of the vision of what's going on, of the strategy is that, you know, you don't just feel like a leader. I, I think it's incredible that you mentioned it and also saying that, you know, a lot of leaders, um, you know, don't do it or don't pay enough attention to it. So we're going to get to hiring right now. And I know you play a big part, you know, hiring people for your team and you have kind of a special or an interesting kind of philosophy around it. Share with us kind of your favorites, uh, your take on it. Hiring is the single most important thing that a company needs to get right because your company is nothing if you don't have great people behind it. Great companies will never be built if you don't have people who are kind, people who are driven, people who are motivated, people who work really well cross-functionally and collaboratively, people who are smart and people who are kind of all in it for the same reason. And, and that is to make, you know, to build something really special and to make the company hyper successful. So when I think about hiring, 
hiring. And I've made a lot of hiring mistakes. It's, it's a tough one. It's really, really tough, especially in sales. I will say, I think that sales is the single hardest role to hire for. And that's because salespeople are so naturally vivacious and great at selling themselves. So as you're walking through a sales process or a hiring process for a sales rep, a sales leader, it's so important to really get deep and understand what are their past successes? What are their past failures? The number one thing that I look for is does somebody take ownership or do they blame others for their mistakes? And you can start to, you have to really listen and really ask a lot of different layers of questioning to understand, you know, let's kind of walk through maybe an example of one. I might ask an account executive, tell me about the deal that you lost that hurt the most and why, you know, they'll go through and they'll say, you know, I lost this deal, blah, blah, blah. Here's why. And then I'll dive in. Well, who did you talk to within that deal? And you start to listen for these different patterns and you just get really curious and you ask a lot of questions to understand why they lost that deal. And what I'm looking for there is not actually their ability to close a deal. It's what did they learn from this you know, loss or this mistake? And how were they able to translate that into future deals? And then the other big thing I'm looking for is blame is did they actually take ownership of this? Did they say, I could have done better here. I got happy ears over there with this person. Or they saying, you know, our product didn't deliver. The competitor beat us out on price. Did they blame or did they take ownership? And that's the single biggest thing that you're looking for as you're hiring is you need to find people that will take ownership and responsibility for their work that they're doing because those same behavioral patterns are going to carry through over to your company. And when is the right time? Because, you know, I, I know there is sometimes kind of a, a battle over it to, to involve HR or, or people, you know, some, in some companies it's, you know, VP people, VP HR, because that also can be tricky. Like who is, who is owning the process? Is it, is it kind of the, the man, the hiring manager? Is it kind of a larger perspective from, from VP people? What's your take on that? Yeah, great, great question. So it's really important to be in lockstep with your recruiting partners. There's a lot of philosophies on recruiting. I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of a hybrid model of having an internal recruiting team that leads point, but also working with agencies and sourcers. And we do a very nice blend of both. We've got three different agencies and sourcing teams we work with. And then we have a wonderful team of recruiters internally. And the recruiters fall within our people org. And so these recruiters all have different specialties that they're assigned to. You know, some are maybe more familiar with account executive hiring, some with customer success. But what I love about recruiters is that they can be very nimble and they can learn about the different roles and be able to pivot. And we have our recruiters just covering so much. But I do think it's it's most important for actually the leader of that person to really be owning the search for the role. Ultimately, you know, they are the the front line there, they're the quarterback, but they need to have a really strong interview panel. They need to have a really strong cross-functional team that is helping to provide input in what they're looking for. Most importantly, they they need to trust their gut. And the biggest hiring mistakes that I have ever made, I'm just, you know, reflecting back to a couple of them, it's I didn't trust my gut. I I either was hiring out of desperation in terms of time series. I needed to get someone in the seat. So I overlooked a lot of things. I also have taken 
references. Another common, another mistake that's very common that I've made a couple times is I, I did references and references are so important. The hiring manager should always do references themselves, but I took the references at face value and I didn't ask enough about the work product of that person. I, I listened more for, oh, they're a great person. They're really fun. You know, they're really vivacious. Again, talking back to what you're looking for in a sales professional, of course you want someone who can sell, but that's table stakes for sales. What you're really looking for, who is this person and what is their work product behind the scenes? continuing on that and and you know the the layoffs and you know also the israeli kind of tech scene right now is you know everybody's talking about it we see it in huge companies uh we see it in small startups nobody's kind of blind to what's going on right now um so Webflow uh, recently announced that they're going to kind of drastically slow down the growth um, over the sales teams. Why have you made this decision and kind of maybe what's the benefits that you see from this kind of decision to the long run? Yeah. So this was a really tough decision. I'll never forget. I sat down with my VP of sales, success, support, partnerships, and, and we just took a hard look at what's going on in the economy. And actually, just in this last month alone, 24,000 tech workers have been laid off. Like That is such a huge amount. I mean, it, it just seems now that we're becoming numb to it. Just a few days ago, Amazon, 10,000 plus. Asana, 13% of the company. It's just these companies that are really great, really wonderful, really strong companies just cutting people. And and we don't know when it's going to end. And I don't mean that to sound really negative, but there's no immediate clear end in sight. So we took a step back and we sat down and we said, you know, of course we looked at our balance sheet. How are we doing cash flow wise? How are we doing revenue? We have over a hundred million in revenue. So we're in actually a very good spot. We've got many years of runway. So we're also in a great spot there, but we don't want to be reckless. And I never want to get to the point where I am having to let go of top performers, high performers, people that came here because they believed in me and they believed in Webflow and they believed in what we're building. And I don't ever want to have to give them that news that, hey, we made these mistakes and we no longer have a place for you. And I think that companies like Stripe and Facebook have handled this beautifully recently with the messages that the founders have put out there, taking full ownership of growing too fast. I just don't ever want to be in that position or have to make that hard call. So what we decided to do is to drastically slow hiring for the next year uh, across the company. We we still will have some hiring and have some headcount, but we want to get to the point where we don't have to be in a world where we have to make layoff choices. And so right now, my goal is that I want at least 80% of our sales team to be successful and to be hitting their numbers. And that is a world-class number. It's so rare that you have 80% of a sales team hitting their numbers. There was actually just a study that came out a couple of weeks ago from uh, Bravado, a big sales kind of tech community company. And they found that 63% of AEs missed their quota last quarter. That is so huge. That's less than 40% of people actually attained. And if you think about the world of sales, we're typically compensated on a split basis. So you know, usually 50% of your base salary, 50% commission. So if you have 63% of people who are not hitting their numbers, that's really tough on a salesperson and on how they provide for their families, how they're able to support and grow and develop to hit their financial milestones and careers. 
And I just don't ever want to have to be in that position where my team is not thriving. So for now, it's and this won't be a forever thing, but for now it's let's go slow. Let's be very intentional. Let's hire the absolute best talent out there and make sure that we can have one of the highest performing sales teams in the world. So sharing with you guys that we had a very authentic moment right now um, before starting kind of the question about retaining employees and and women, and we're going to get to it. Maggie had to kind of run to the other room. Uh, she has two daughters um, and all that juggling that has to, to, to work out somehow. So um, Maggie, I know you've kind of played a big part in how kind of working parents, particularly mothers, are treated at work. Um, and it's something that you kind of uh, invest in and it's kind of one of your priorities. And what is kind of the main benefits of, you know, when working moms are treated right when returning to work? Again, kind of a big issue or a big challenge and a subject that is kind of very well kind of talked around different companies today. There's Actually, nothing that I am more passionate about than uh, working mothers, working parents, parental leave, as well as supporting them back in this transition. I, I don't know if this number is widely spread, but actually in 2021, it's really sombering. There was historic numbers of women that left their jobs in 2021. So not even the height of the pandemic of 2020, but actually the next year in 2021. And that resulted in the lowest workforce participation of women globally since 1988, 34 years ago. Wow, that's crazy. It's Absolutely crazy. And it is, if you think a lot about gender equality and gender parity and all of these studies, you know, McKinsey is really a forefront leader on looking at women in the workplace and how it's been proven that when companies have more equal numbers of women and men, that they're going to be more successful because you have different perspectives and women can actually tend to lead very differently than a lot of men. And it's just so important to have this gender and racial parity across the workforce. So women's unemployment actually rose to nearly 15% and globally women lost $800 billion in wages. Wow. Wow. I'm shocked here, Maggie. <laughs> These are hard numbers. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's, and think about that 800 billion and, and where that's going. And that's going towards families. It's going towards education. It's going actually just back into the economy and keeping our economy thriving. And then probably the worst one here is that 51% of women say that their mental health has declined while anxiety and depression rates have skyrocketed. So this is why it's so important to be supporting our women and right now, parental leave is a hot topic. I help to change the parental leave policies at both Slack as well as Webflow. I've done a ton of research on this. I have, for anyone listening, feel free to message me on LinkedIn. I can share a spreadsheet that has 55 of the top tech companies out there and what their parental leave policies and benefits are. And it's so important to be getting this out there. And sadly, you know, America actually is one of the only countries that doesn't have mandated supported parental leave, which is horrible. Um, so kudos to, to everyone else around the world who's, who's listening to this. But let's talk a bit about supporting women as they return to work, because I think everyone is acutely aware of the importance of giving, you know, 
parents the space to be with their newest addition to their family, but it's very often overlooked the importance of returning to work and how to support them. So I've now come back to work twice and both times I was just thrown right back in the deep end, no ramp, nine hour days. And yes, I absolutely could have stood up for myself and said, uh, you know, I need to take some time. I need to ramp into this slower. But as a mom, you carry that mom guilt, for lack of a better term. You carry this guilt that I've already been out for months. I can't ask for any more. And that's why it's so important for leaders and for companies to be supporting these new parents as they're returning to work, to be having support groups, to be giving them different resources for their leaders to be checking in and not realizing or not thinking that, you know, they're back, they're back here full time. For mothers who are breastfeeding or pumping, they spend on average 16 hours a week pumping. That is two full days that someone is now feeding their child, but also trying to be a working mother, a working employee, clear-headed. That doesn't even get into talking about postpartum depression and stress and all of the anxieties that just come alongside healing. So it is so important. And there I've seen actually, sadly, very few companies get this right. And it's just something that I hope we can all be very acutely aware of in the future is when you have the simplest thing you can do, when you have a new parent coming back to your company or to your workforce to just simply check in with them, grab 15 minutes, find out how they're doing, catch them up to speed on what's been going on and really just understand what can you do to support them. Wow, this is super important. I think I'm kind of, I'm still blown away by the numbers. So we're really coming to an end. This is like when this is like flew by <laughs> um, our entire talk. And we always finish off with asking a main advice to give out to different team leaders, maybe specifically, you know, sales leaders on how to successfully scale a team. So kind of what's your thought on that? Absolutely. I'll take you through my top three pieces of advice um, that, that I try to live by and especially that are really important when you're starting a sales team or when you're at a hyper growth company. The first one is to focus on cross-functional relationships. What's so funny is that, you know, people often think that sales is a bit of on an island and sometimes kind of culturally sales, everyone's kind of like, what's the sales team doing over there? Um, but sales would not exist without cross-functional support, without marketing support, without demand gen support, without finance, rev ops, legal, customer support. Sales is actually one of the most cross-functional departments that there is and is so often People don't think about the important nature of building cross-functional relationships and really educating the company on what sales is. At my last two companies, at both Slack as well as Webflow, they're both very founder-led companies and both founders, Stuart Butterfield and Vlag Magdalene, had never worked with a sales team before. So it's so important in cross-functional, and these are both amazing, brilliant CEOs, but they just weren't familiar with the world of sales. So it's so important to be there as a leader and to educate our cross-functional partners on what it is that sales does, why it's important to the company, that we're not out there just being sleazy and wheeling and dealing, but we're actually teaching and working with our customers to understand their pains and be able to present the value that Webflow or Slack or whatever your company is, is going to be able to provide. That's why number one, cross-functional relationships are so important to work on always and get right. The second piece of advice I have is to build for scale. 
So what I mean by this is don't build for where you are now, build for where you think you're going to be in one year, five years, 10 years. Something that we think about a lot is actually tooling. So we spend, you know, a lot of money on best of breed tools. We just bought recently Clary, world-class forecasting. We've got Gong, great, incredible customer call recording and insights. We have DocuSign, CLM. I mean, we have these world-class tools that maybe we don't need right now at the stage of our journey, but you know what? It's so much easier to buy them now, implement them and get the field using them than it is to try to pivot later on and buy something maybe cheaper and then try to rip and replace it in a few years. Just bite the bullet now and buy those world-class tools now because it's never going to be easier to train and enable on them than it is at this point. And then my last thing which is so important, which Kenley, we got wrong at Slack and we got right at Webflow is to build for outbound right away. At Slack, we didn't build, you know, a true outbound engine. We talked a lot about what I did in the proactive front, but it wasn't a full team. We didn't have sales dev until mid 2017, till we were well over hundred million in revenue. And that impacted us down the road that we, it, it takes a while to get a full outbound sales dev machine built. It takes a good year. And it was just a lot of catch up that we had to do. And I think if we would have put that as a bit more in a forefront, we actually would have hit a billion even faster than we did. And I think Slack is one to the first or the second company to hit a billion in, in that record time, but we would have done it even faster. And so when I came over to Webflow, one of the very first things I did is I built out a sales dev team. There was uh, zero sales dev people, zero SDRs when I started. And now fast forward, we've got a team of 19 a year and a half later, and it's been a lot of work, but our sales dev team is now our single biggest contributor of our pipeline for sales. And that is something now for the rest of my career that I will hold near and dear that one of the first things you need to do outside of building AEs and customer success is to build a sales dev team. Wow. Super insightful. Thank you for this, Maggie. And this was, and I had such a great time um, having this uh, conversation. Actually, you are our closing episode for season number one of How I Scale My Team. So cherry on the top. And thank you for all of our listeners. Uh, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, Shaha and I have prepared uh, a really cool recap uh, episode for the last kind of episode for the show. I know you're going to love it. And thank you, everyone. Thank you.